Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. New episodes every two weeks. Find Historical Blindness on most podcast players and platforms. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. What does that noise mean? It's a special day. Oh, God. Yeah. It's my love and sweet birthday. Yes, 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 it's my birthday today. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. You're so sweet. I wish that you were even half as excited about your birthday uh, every year as I am about your birthday every year. Well, it's just that I've had plenty of them. Yeah, so. well, it's a glorious occasion. I appreciate that. And it uh, requires great celebration. That's all I'm saying. What did you do today? I haven't seen you all day. Um, I Well, I got up, I had some coffee, and uh, then I took a nap almost oh. immediately <laughs> after that. <laughs> That sounds like your best day. Yeah, it's pretty much my best day. That's good. The well, best I'm, birthday ever. I'm really glad. Thanks. What about your day? How did you had to go to work? What did uh, how did your day go? Oh well, I figured out that I can fit a water bottle, a jug of nail files, and a can of soup in my pants. <laughs> <laughs> was this some kind of office-wide competition that well, uh, no no it's just like i have i guess i have the mr potato head of the human body because like these pants fit me all the places except for right in that like front paunch area uh, there's just a lot of extra room so i, I thought we'd see how much i could jam in there yeah but now what you do at work well most people don't. Although maybe the world would be a better place. You see if, how much you can jam in your pants. See how many objects you can put in your pants. Maybe that's how it should be determined who climbs the corporate ladder. Maybe. My boss came by and he was like, uh, what's going on here? And I pulled a can of soup out and he was like, were you warming that up? Or, like, Don't be gross. <laughs> Like I'm pulling items out of my pants and telling other people to stop being gross. It's amazing. 
So I'm the birthday boy today. So uh, tell me a story. Oh, okay. What you got for me? I didn't. I thought you went first because it was your birthday. But okay, this is fine too. No, I want to sit back and be regaled. Excellent. Well, then let me tell you about this. So the Fiestas de Santa Fe. It's a festival that's held every autumn in Santa Fe in New Mexico, and it's been held since 1712 to celebrate the Spanish retaking of the city in 1692 by Don Diego de Vargas from the Pueblo tribes who had occupied the city since the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. So the fiesta was revamped in 1912 by a group led by the Santa Fe Chamber of Commerce and a man named Edgar Lee Hewitt. So Hewitt re-envisioned the fiesta as a celebration of the history of New Mexico from prehistoric times to the annexation by the United States and and rooted in the culture of Indians, uh, Hispanics, and uh, Anglos. Okay. So from 1925 to 1932, the Spanish Colonial Art Society sold Santos at the festival. Uh, Santos, you may know, are like painted, carved images of saints. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I didn't know that what that was, but I, I can envision it in my head. Okay. So um, like when the Spanish came to the Americas and they wanted visual representations of the stories of the saints, right. they would make these, they didn't call them Santos. I don't know what they called them, but they would make visual aids. Mm-hmm. It was a way to convert people to their religion. Uh-huh. Now, they were selling these Santos during the fiesta, and that event spun off into its own celebration called the Spanish Market. So when Hewitt started charging admission to this fiesta, a group kind of got jacked up about it. And they were like, no, this is a city thing. This is something that we all do together. Uh, it's an fit place for artists is a place for the people you shouldn't be charging admission that's not cool dude so they started their own group called el pasatiempo now that kind of ended up being reabsorbed into the fiesta over the years okay so it's morphing it's changing it's evolving exactly and when it was reabsorbed into the fiesta it featured and it brought with it what was called a hysterical pageant which was a parody of the historical pageant that they had at the fiesta. So these artists were like, we're going to have this hysterical pageant. Um, And also the burning of the Zozobra. Explain, please. Now, this is what we're talking about today. The burning of the Zozobra. Big thanks, by the way, to the kid who sent me a message and said, you should talk about the burning of the Zozobra. (laughs) So the Zozobra, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Old Man Gloom. A.K.A. OMG. OMG. Right? He was the original OMG. The OG OMG. Get down with OMG. Yeah, you know me. Get down with OMG. Yeah, you know me. Anyway, the Zozobra is a 50-foot tall marionette effigy that is built and burned during the annual Fiesta de Santa Fe. So it's like Burning Man. It's like Burning Man. But with a puppet. But with a really weird puppet. I am all in on this. So Zozobra, also man as old man gloom, is the creation of Will Schuster, who is one of the group of artists known as the Cinco Pintores, who made their way to New Mexico in the 1920s. And of course, even to this day, Santa Fe is a huge art district. Yes. 
I've been to New Mexico. Not Santa Fe. Nope. But you've been to uh, Albuquerque. Yes. Mm. I'm still learning how to spell it, though. So as his name suggests, OMG embodies gloom. And by burning him, people destroy the worries and troubles of the previous year in the flames. This is beautiful. I know. Um, this is something that I really like to do, like symbolically. Like when we have a fire, I like to write down things that have jacked me up over the last week or so. Yep. Ball them up, toss them in the fire, let them go into the flames, let them right away from me. I don't need you anymore. I do that with bills. Yeah, that's been an issue before. Mm. So anyone with an excess of gloom is encouraged to write down the nature of his or her gloom on the slip of paper and leave it in the gloom box, <laughs> which is found in the offices of the Santa Fe Reporter in the weeks leading up to the burn. I love that there's something called a gloom box. There is something called a gloom box. I think we all need one. It also sounds like like something that's downstairs on a sad floozy. Or it could refer to some sort of infection. Right. Oh, my gosh. You're right. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I can't go out tonight. I've got the gloom box. (laughs) (laughs) Don't come near me for a while, okay? The tests are back. (laughs) I have the gloom box. (laughs) So anyway, uh, participants can also add documents on the day of the burning prior to the event by visiting a gloom tent where they can add to the marionette stuffing. So... This is very well organized. When you've got the gloom box, Mm -hmm. it's very unlikely your partner will pitch a gloom tent. I'm just trying to get this straight in my mind. Sure. But where does the stuffing come into play? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not authorized to answer that. All right. So according to burnzazobra.com, Zazobra is the enemy of all that is good. Santa Fe knows all too well the spell of darkness and despair that Zozobra casts annually over the city. This doomful specter is a monster who is created and reborn annually because of our own nefarious and woeful deeds throughout the year. In order to lure Zozobra out of hiding, the leaders invite him to the Santa Fe celebration the annual Fiestas de Santa Fe. You'd think after several years of getting burned up, he'd catch on and, and refuse the invitation. Maybe just don't respond to the RSVP. I know that's what I do. Get down with RSVP. Yeah, you know me. How many times can we do this <laughs> show? I don't know. I'm going to keep a tally. Okay, cool. So, with his enormous ego urging him on... Zazobra accepts the invitation, Uh, recognizing it as his best opportunity to invade the heart of the town, to destroy hope and happiness that uh, he can't stay away. And you can get what you want from him Mm -hmm. by simply appealing to his ego. That's right. So you just tell him things that he wants to hear, Mm -hmm. and then he'll give you what you want. But his motives are to destroy humankind. Yep, that's 100% accurate. He sounds narcissistic. He sure does. So Zozobra appears at a place called Fort Marcy Park, and that's kind of north of Santa Fe's midsection. And at the appointed hour, the crowd has shown up, Zazobra is there, and Zazobra apparently becomes disgruntled 
by the <laughs> by the catering because that, that makes me grumpy if it's bad catering because the crowd isn't big enough he gets yeah, kind of okay. upset all right yeah. um he also doesn't like to be kept waiting so while the town folk gather he casts a spell over the children of santa fe to come to him now again this is from burnsazobra.com uh, he drives hope and happiness out of the minds of children. They become his minions, a.k.a. gloomies. Ah. It turns out Zozobra does know the town's plan to capture him. Okay. So the gloomies are part of his plan, and they... This is beginning to sound more like a Dr. Seuss book. It is a very interesting story that has been created. And again, this was all part of... I, his name was Will Schuster. Uh, mm. He was an artist, and this was all part of his idea. He created of, the backstory. Yes. I love this guy. I know. So, as if from a waking nightmare, again, burnsazobra.com, the gloomy children return to reality and scatter at the sight of the bright light from the torches that the townspeople carry. So, keep in mind, Zazobra's image is like 50 feet tall. He's very large thing that they've created no they make this out of wood out of wood and fill him with paper can you imagine picking up that order at like lowe's zozobra's victory is short-lived because the crowd starts to yell burn him <laughs> burn him and zozobra's eternal enemy the fire spirit materializes from the hope's the dreams and the faith of santa fe's citizens you know this is kind of silly but yet, there's an element of beauty to it. That's the thing is, I love it. I love this idea. I love the whole concept of it. I think it's important that we use our, I mean, I'm getting a little, you know, goofy here, but we have to, we have to acknowledge the things that, that are the gloomies in our lives. Sure. And maybe sometimes we have to set them on fire. I'm just saying it's yep. important. Yep. That's how you move forward. I'm wondering if like a uh, an oral history of this festival would be passed down over generations and then maybe lost to time, but then they start finding little elements of it mm -hmm. archaeologically, like maybe, you know, 800 years in the future, mm -hmm. and determine that this was, in fact, a legitimate religion. I know this. You want to be really careful with your oral history when you're dealing with a gloom box. <laughs> So again, the fire spirit is the enemy of <laughs> the fire spirit is the enemy of Zazobra. Uh, he dances about, which is basically the flaming torches that the citizens of Santa Fe carry with them. Right. They light him on fire, mm -hmm. and then there are fireworks, and everyone kind of dances about and has a festival. There's alcohol involved, isn't there? I can't imagine that there wouldn't be. There would have to be. And whenever you're burning something large like that, normally there's alcohol involved. I, yes, <laughs> often to the detriment of those involved. Are you speaking from personal experience? I don't know why. That's <laughs> anyway, so everyone has this giant party while uh, he burns. Mm -hmm. And one, we have to go to this festival. Yes. We have to go to this festival. I kind of want to create a mini version of it in our yard tonight. Oh, well, we can absolutely do that. That would be fun. Yeah. Okay. Um, fire, smoke fills the air. It's a whole thing. And once he's burned down, there's a, there's a big celebration. It goes into the night, of course. 
And then he's vanquished. However, immediately he starts building his strength again. Right. Um, for next year's because celebration. people are going to be dicks. Naturally. As soon as the alcohol wears off. Yeah. So then uh, the next September, usually in the second week of September, they will go through the whole thing again and uh, and take care of Zazobra and, and trick him. And he will think that he's tricking them. And then the fire and the fun and all that business. It's a delicate dance of fate. It really is. Now, the whole festival, as I've said, has been going on for a lot longer than this. But this is a part of it that I just think that is magical and amazing. And I mean, it's been going on for almost a hundred years. That's incredible. And that's, it's kind of built its own traditions and magic. And there's something, I don't know. I just really think it's rad. I think it's great. I want to be a part of it. It's the first of September. The uh, Usually the second week of September. Eh, we don't have time this year, unfortunately. <laughs> Maybe next year we'll go. That would be great. Okay. We're busy getting ready for our live shows. Oh, yes, that's right. Do you want? This would be a great segue. Yeah, okay, into... so we have four live shows. No, five live shows coming up. Yeah, but the fifth one's not until January. Okay, so, so we have four live shows coming right up. Right, yes. In October. We do. This is what you wanted me to do, right? I guess. Okay. I don't. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, get your tickets for the live shows. Uh, there's only uh, a few VIPs left. There will be no fire at these events. Uh. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, the VIP tickets in Nashville are sold out, but mm -hmm. there's still a few available. I think less than 10 in San Francisco. And there are a couple few in Boston and Charlotte. So if you want to grab the VIPs, I would do that now. You can go to our website, theboxofoddities.com. It's the part of the podcast that bakes for 15 minutes at 400 degrees and smells vaguely of venison and leftover cabbage. This is That Thing in the Middle. So in May of 2015, three men in Mount Morris, New York, broke into a Build-A-Burger restaurant. They stole the cash register, the establishment's entire surveillance system, and 10 pounds of macaroni salad. They then made their getaway on a footpath in some nearby woods. Law enforcement was able to apprehend them just a short time later, after following what the sheriff's office described as a trail of cash register parts, surveillance system parts, rubber gloves, loose change, and a steady trail of macaroni salad. Apparently, the pasta bandits grew hungry during their getaway and took turns eating the macaroni salad while they made their escape, spilling it on the trail as they ran. Whoops. They were arrested and charged with third-degree burglary, third-degree criminal mischief, fourth-degree grand larceny, and first-degree stupidity with a bowl of macaroni salad. Mmm! Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well... I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Someday, they'll let me out of this little announcer's booth. But until then, this is The Box of Oddities. 
In the last episode, I talked about uh, strange stories that came from people who worked in psych wards, whether it was uh, disturbing or horrific, and sometimes just unusual or, or even funny. Katie wrote to us, my mom used to work on a hospital psych unit. They would take police holds, often folks who had gone off their meds and had been picked up by police in the middle of the night for disturbing the peace. They come in, they they get an eval, get back on their meds, get a good night's sleep and a hot breakfast the next morning. At one point, somebody had gifted a pair of peacocks to the hospital, and they lived in the courtyard on the grounds. They'd occasionally get up on their roof, and they could be seen through the skylights in the dining room. She'd often get called over by patients who told her they didn't think their meds were working because they were seeing peacocks in the skylight. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Katie. Speaking of peacocks, how about that monarch chrysalis on our side building house thing? That cocoon? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, the little... I think it's a chrysalis. I, I don't know. It's it's a cocoon for a monarch butterfly, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a worm turning a caterpillar. into a caterpillar that's turning into a butterfly. That's right. Inside, a little jade-colored capsule with what looks to be gold trim. I don't understand how they make gold, but uh, it's pretty impressive, and it's growing on the side of our house. I grew butterflies. Bitches! <laughs> What did you do today? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm very I, I, excited. It took <laughs> so long for us to grow as much milkweed as we have at our house. You're so very excited about it. Every, I <laughs> every time someone mows, I'm like, watch out for that milkweed. <laughs> anyway, what you got for me? In 1999, Johann Reinhard and his team of researchers set out uh, into the high Andes. This is according to Wikipedia. They were in search for... Inca ruins, more specifically sacrifice sites. Ooh. Several times the expedition came very close to failure. It was uh it was a actually quite quite a shit show for them. After a long I guess they had about a month spent exploring on a lower elevation mountain nearby. The team finally approached close to the summit of Yuyayako, which is a volcano. Uh, after establishing they had a series of uh, camps uh, throughout the ascent, which mm-hmm. makes sense because sure. this was a volcano. The the height of this volcano, 22,000 feet. Whoa. Yeah. And it's on the border of Argentina and Peru. See, this, so often people will talk about like elevation and I'm like, okay, well, I've been to Quito. All right. That's like 9,300 feet. I don't think it's quite that, is it? Like, like in the 8,000 foot range, something like that anyway. All right. I thought it was closer to the thing that I said, which is why I said it. (laughs) But whatever. Um, And then you hear things like 22,000 and you're like, oh, I see. That's nothing. I got it. Okay, fine. Yeah. I get a headache when we fly into Quito, Ecuador. (laughs) Well, I did both times. Right. Yeah. It's not like we're we're not like all the time we fly into there. Though I will say, whichever the closest pizza place to the Zen Hotel in Quito, Ecuador is, makes the best pizza I've ever had. (laughs) Um, This is kind of a a side trail, but I noticed I was looking at uh, different areas that people download our podcast from. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of downloads from 
Ecuador. Do you think it's because we're obsessed with them? uh, Well, I don't know why that is, but uh, we are planning to move there one day in Mm -hmm. a few years. And so if you're listening in Ecuador, send us a message and tell us where you are. Oh my gosh, please do. That would be great. There are so many areas that I'm interested in. Anyway, what was the point? Oh yeah, that pizza was good. So any hoozle. Tall volcano. Got it. Right, right, right. And the group of archaeologists braved incredible climate and conditions. Over 70 mile per hour winds and extreme temperatures at one point reaching minus 40 degrees at their final camp at an elevation of about 6,600 meters or 21,700 feet. A huge storm happened, lasted for four days. They were uh, trapped in within their little camp. And according to Reinhardt, the team was just about ready to give up. Again, they were searching for Incan sacrifice sites. One of the things we've watched a lot of documentaries about traveling in the high mountains of the Andes and well, in other places, but mostly the Andes were obsessed. One of the things that blows my mind is the people who are native to that area and how their bodies are just different than ours right. and how they can marathon at those altitudes and not even be winded. It's incredible the way that their body just works differently. Oh, that's absolutely true. It's it's remarkable. So the storm subsided and Reinhardt's team saw something poking out of the snow that looked like an artificial structure. It ended up to be a gravesite containing the most well-preserved mummies ever discovered in modern history. Three mummified children, two girls, one boy. Along with that, several gold, shell, and silver statues, pottery, textile. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt again. Uh, What year was this? They discovered this in 1999. In 99. These children had been at the top of the mountain dead for 500 years. Whoa. Again, there were three of them. There were two younger ones. They were about five, six, seven years old. And the older one was 12 or 13. Mm. The younger girl's body had been struck by lightning after her death. Oh, wow. Causing uh, burn damage all over her body, especially her face. The other two mummies were not affected. And again, these are considered to be the most well-preserved mummies ever discovered. Which blows my mind because naturally when you think mummies, you think Egypt. Yep. Not the high mountains of Argentina. The thing is with Egyptian mummies, they were prepared to be mummified. Mm -hmm. These children were mummified just because they were at 22,000 feet. They're like peat people. Yes. Just the natural surroundings created an environment to preserve their bodies. Exactly. They were found at the burial site, three of them. Uh, the oldest one is called La Doncea, the maiden. Another was called La Nina del Rio, the lightning, the light- girl, the lightning girl. Ah. Yeah. And the third, El Nino, the boy. These three mummies were in exceptional condition. Reinhardt said that uh, the arms were perfectly preserved, even down to the individual hairs. The internal organs were still intact, and one of the hearts still contained frozen blood. Because the mummies froze before dehydration wow. could occur, the shriveling of the organs that is uh, you know, typical to exposed human remains never took place. Going to kind of focus on La Doncea. 
It's believed that she was an Akaya, or a sun virgin. She was a virgin that was chosen and sanctified at around the age of, of 10 years old. Uh, she was. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, but at 10, you should be a virgin. That's just. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, those were different times. I guess. Um, she lived with other girls and women who would become royal wives, priestesses, and sacrifices. The practice of ritual sacrifice in the Inca society was intended to ensure health and rich harvests and favorable weather. Mm -hmm. Now, even though she was no older than 15, maybe as young as 12, she had evidence of white hairs indicating high levels of stress. Wow. Do you think that she knew she was going to be sacrificed? I mean, because that would stress me out. Excellent question. Thank you. Let's talk about the sacrifice. It's called Capacocha, child sacrifice. It was an important part of the Inca religion and was often used to commemorate important events like, say, the uh, the death of a local royal individual. Mm -hmm. Human sacrifice was also offered to uh, ask for protection. Now, sacrifice could only occur with the direct approval of of the Inca emperor. Okay, so it's not like randomites were going around, quote unquote, sacrificing no. children. No. It was a big social event that had to be deemed appropriate by officials, quote unquote. It was like Burning Man. I don't think no. that that's... No. Nope. So children were chosen from all over the Inca Empire. Uh, they were picked primarily based on their physical perfection. They looked for children who were blemish-free, that were attractive. See, that goes against everything that I know um, as someone who grew up around dog breeding. You want to save the ones that look real nice. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's evolution in reverse. Mm. Uh, the children chosen for sacrifice were normally sons and daughters of nobles and okay. local, local rulers. Again, very much the opposite of what we see in today's culture. Right, <laughs> right. Where it's like, oh, we're going to war and suddenly the senator's son has a bone spur. I ain't no senator, son. I've heard that song. So these children were chosen, and then they were taken hundreds of miles to Cusco, or maybe even thousands in some case. Cusco was the capital of the Inca Empire. They were uh, subject to important purification rituals. Gross. The idea was that uh, these children would live for a period of a couple of years uh, like royalty, they would be purified during that process, and then they'd be marched to the top of a volcano and allowed to freeze to death. It was considered by the uh, Inca Empire to be a great honor of course, to die as a sacrifice. The UK Express said um, how these sacrifices were viewed at the time, it's obviously hard to determine. Incas believed that uh, agricultural fertility and success were dependent on divine help and that was achieved by making human sacrifices. There's an account from um, a Spanish Jesuit priest, Bernard Bay Cobo. He wrote about the sacrifices in 1653, detailing how parents forced to give up their children had to pretend that they were honored. Right. 
Usually those families were of lower class. Occasionally children from peasant classes were chosen. Normally that was not the case because royalty or movers and shakers in the Inca Empire lobbied for the opportunity to volunteer their children for this because they thought it would help them move up the ranks. Socially. And politically. So then the people who were lower class, whose children were chosen, they had to just pretend that they were cool with this. Yep. It was a major offense to show any sadness. They were obliged to do it. I mean, it also makes me think like, if I had a kid and I knew that they were looking for a child to sacrifice, mm. what are the things that I would do to keep that from happening? What kind of extremes would I take? Or what kind of measures would I take to be sure that they weren't the ones selected or that we weren't in that region? I mean, to like, I hate even thinking about it. Well, I'll tell you what a lot of them did is they took their kids out and they had them sexed up. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah that that's, sounds fucking terrible. That's exactly what they would do. God damn. They were actually pleased if their 10, 12-year-old daughter yep. was sexually active early. Because they weren't going to be then murdered. They weren't going to be taken. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, this hurts my heart, my whole chest region. From what we know of the Spanish Chronicles, particularly attractive or gifted women were chosen. The Incas actually had someone who went out to find these young women and then take them from their families. Now, their families had no choice. And like I said, most a lot of families, at least in the upper class of Incan society, lobbied for their kids to be taken. Right. So I can't imagine that lower class kids would have to be taken very often. No, no. But they did at yeah, some point, including the maiden that we're talking about. She appeared to have been from a peasant class. Mm. We'll get to that. According to the Huffington Post, research found the body had been fattened up before sacrifice, being fed uh, a typical peasant diet of potatoes and other common vegetables up until about a year before sacrifice. Then the evidence suggests they were given, quote, elite foods like maize and dried llama meat. So they started uh, doing some tests in the lab okay. on these perfectly preserved children that had been dead for 500 years. And what they discovered initially, using a technique called shotgun proteomics, it's some kind of state-of-the-art testing. Got it. Uh, they found that the maiden's profile, and again, this is the older one, mm -hmm. her proteins match that of a chronic respiratory infection patient. They took x-rays and her lungs were discovered to be showing signs of lung infection. She had an upper respiratory infection when she died. It could have been anything from just a, a simple cold, but then they found evidence that uh, there was perhaps bacteria that could lead to upper respiratory tract infections like tuberculosis. Oh, so... I mean, they didn't do a very good job of picking the no well the crop there. That's a great point. <laughs> <laughs> Live Science said archaeologists then analyzed hair samples from the three, and they found out more about their final moments of life. What they found out was that all three children apparently had come from a peasant background, mm. and that they had eaten food staples available to their class of society at the time, which was basically potatoes. Mm -hmm. And then 
about a year or so before their deaths, their diets had improved dramatically. They were fattened up for the slaughter. They were fattened up for the slaughter. I... I want to be loving and supportive and kind and gentle when I talk about culture, uh, because I think it's important that we understand that what we understand as normal or usual or right or wrong. It's not a gold standard. None of us know any of those things. None of us know what is normal. There is no normal. So I want to always be open to the ideas that other people have and that other people bring. But there is a part of me that struggles with the concept that anyone can live and work with a child for a year, fattening them up, Mm -hmm. knowing that they are going to be killed. It's like Hansel and Gretel. Without the cannibalism. But even without the the noble thought process behind it, it's there's I I get that they thought that it was for the good of the community, Mm -hmm. that they thought that it was a small thing for the larger good. Yeah, I get that. But the day to day and there had to have been someone caring for them. Oh, there was. They had they had attendants that uh, that cared for them. So those attendants had to know this kid's gonna yeah. die. Oh, yeah. I'm getting to know this child. Mm-hmm. I'm feeding them things that might delight them, even though they kind of know that that is that they are only getting it because it's part of their death ritual, and it, all the feelings that come with that. I mean, there's. You can't feel good about that. You can't well, know in your heart of hearts that that's the right choice to make. There is a question as to whether or not the children knew what was what was happening. Oh. Speculation is maybe the older child or in other cases like this, the older children knew what was going on, but the younger ones probably did not. So they were just enjoying llama and being like, yes, I am loving llama. I'm into this. Yeah, exactly. And it it appeared based on these uh, studies that the older child, the maiden, Mm -hmm. was receiving far more food than the other children were, even though their diets had been improved dramatically. And here's the reason why. She was the official sacrifice, Mm -hmm. the older child was. The other two were just her attendants. Ew, I see. So they didn't get all of the benefits mm-hmm. of, you know, being they killed. They weren't being fanned with the palm fronds no, no, and fed no. grapes. No, and they blah, were actually blah. just uh, forced into slavery. And we're talking about five, six, seven-year-old kids. Wow. This is rough, sweetie. Because as I said, I want to support other cultures. Sure. However, However, I'm taking a stance against child murder. Uh, yeah, I think that that's... Not controversial at all. Thank you. Okay, this new study that they did with the uh, DNA testing and the hair samples also determined that there were high levels of cocaine and alcohol in these children. Sure. Well, the cocoa plant, as we know, is used for a lot of things in that region, including altitude sickness. The scientists uh, created a timeline of coca and alcohol consumption for the children. And uh, due to, this is, of course, because of the, due to the length of their hair, they were able to, it's like tree rings. They can go back in time and figure things out as to the levels of toxicity. Yeah. 
The younger children went back to about nine months before their death, where they were fed excessive amounts of alcohol and coca leaves, whereas the maiden's timeline went back 21 months before her death. They also found out the younger children ingested coca and alcohol at a steady rate, but the maiden consumed significantly more coca, especially in her final year with peak consumption occurring at about six months before her death. Her alcohol consumption peaked within the last few weeks of her life. The increase is thought uh, in the drug and alcohol ingestion is likely to ease her impending sense of doom. You know, her, she was okay. aware that she was going to be killed. I was wondering if that was part of the process of like the the giving, the feeding, the let's call it fattening of the sacrifice, or if it was part of the calming yes. and the. Yeah, that's what they think. That's exactly what they think. Ooh, that's rough. So she was fed an excessive amount of coca leaves or some derivative of it and a uh, type of beer made from corn called chicha. Now, that's not surprising in itself because both of those elements were quite prevalent in Incan society. Of course. But an anthropologist at Tulane University said it's particularly interesting the level of detail at which the researchers were able to look at this. It allows them to hypothesize why the older child of the three was drinking so much more yeah. and chewing so many more coca leaves. In the Incan capital of Cusco in Peru, mm -hmm. where the maiden was taken to live under the guardianship of priestesses, so at about six months before her death, there was a ceremony that involved a ritual of hair cutting. Some of the clippings were, were found with the mummies, and they were able, through the determination of uh, this type of research, a pretty realistic timeline. I the find that really fascinating that that whole ritual was part of the burial of them. Yeah. Because I know, like, I have a hard time finding a receipt for something that I bought a week ago. I mean, yeah. I guess it's, it's yeah. more important than that. But sure, um, that's really interesting. And it, and because of the timeline of the coca and alcohol intake, I mean, that makes sense that they would have started this process long before, and yes. and that would have all been part of the ceremony. Another part of the ceremony was. This began in the uh, city of Cusco, but the volcano that they found her on was hundreds of miles away. It was on the Peru-Argentine border. Mm -hmm. So what they are learning is, at least in this case, they would fatten these kids up, mm -hmm. get them all hopped up on goofballs. And Christ knows what else. And then they would be marched for hundreds of miles. That's the same as the peat people. Do you remember the story of the redheaded uh, yes. peat lady? Yes. And they said that she had, her diet had dramatically changed within the last year of her life and that she had traveled significantly during those last few months. That's fascinating. And that was Iron Age though. Yeah. So that was even before this. That's fascinating indeed. Along the route, they would stop and they would hold festivals. And it is thought that uh, perhaps the levels of alcohol in coca were higher for the older girl because she was partying along the way. Oh, that makes sense. But then again, they were, of course, making sure she had plenty yeah. of all of that to keep her under control. It could be that she had a better idea of what was going to happen to her because mm -hmm. she, was, she was older. On September 6, 2007, the High Country Archaeological Museum in Salta, Argentina, unveiled 
Ladoncia, the oldest of the three victims, for her first public viewing. The, mm. the museum is displaying the mummy in a refrigerated, low-oxygen environment that uh, is supposed to duplicate the high-altitude conditions that allowed for her remarkable natural preservation. Now, of course, this is controversial, again, because this is an indigenous person that is dead and being put on display. I'm sorry, where is this display? It, it's in Argentina. It's it in, is in Argentina. It's in Salta, Argentina. At least it's not like they yeah. brought her to Chicago. And- yeah, or just, you know, leased her out to a touring carnival. Right, exactly. So, so there's that. So, I mean, it is part of their history. It is, although a lot of the indigenous peoples are offended by it, and, and, I, and I understand that. Let me show you a picture. You're not going to believe how well-preserved. Yeah, no, I want to see this immensely. This young lady has been dead for 500 years, but she looks like she just nodded off. This is amazing. And I have to tell you that I've seen this photo because I almost did this topic (laughs) like two weeks ago. Well, okay. Okay. Um, Well, cool. It's no, it's incredible. It's, um, and the positioning of them is, uh, interesting in itself. I've fallen asleep in that position. Yeah, that's the thing. She she looks she as though... She looks like a little girl who's fallen asleep. And it is that makes it amazing and upsetting. Mm, it's an incredible thing. She was so well well preserved mm-hmm. that they, uh, they discovered she had an upper respiratory infection. That's incredible. That just amazes me. It is amazing. So that's the story of the uh, frozen children of Yuya Yako in uh, Argentina. Slash Peru. That was a wonderful story. We will post the photos. You've probably seen the photo. I I had a hundred times, but did not really know the story behind it, that uh, they were found at 22,000 feet. Essentially, they drugged these kids. They got them drunk and stoned, took them to a top of a volcano and left them there to freeze to death. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot we can't fathom Mm. so the process of it the ritual of it is all new and interesting and it feels wrong to say but it is interesting because i have no concept of how i would do that i didn't think hey this was a year-long idea and we would cut their hair first and then start up you know there was there's so much about it you did a real good job well thanks it was very interesting In, it's, it's terrible yes and so upsetting but very interesting again cat is anti-child sacrifice <laughs> in I, case we were clear let's on let's all get on the cat train thank you you're you're welcome let's shift gears and uh wrap this up for tickets to any of our shows, we're going to be in San Francisco, Boston, San Francisco, Charlotte, and Boston then and Charlotte, and then Nashville, Nashville. And uh, oh, we, this these tickets aren't on sale yet, but soon Washington D.C. Yeah. Anyway, all the information's available at theboxofoddities.com. We've got a whole thing coming up, guys, and we want you there for it. We love you, and we look forward to seeing you on Thursday. Until then. You keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to, to beseech you for assistance. The box of oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you. 
to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.